and welcome to this week's episode of The Knowing Heart. So the title for this week's lecture is Redefining Space. Subtitle, Becoming God's General Contractor. Okay, so as always, let's start with a modern day issue, something that we're gonna take from this mystical teaching and connect it to our modern day lives, our practical lives in 2020. So many believe that all the challenges we face are of our own making. And especially so for those who live under democratic governments and among them uniquely, especially for those who live in America, the land of kindness and the land of opportunity. So it's gotta be, it's our own doing because the opportunity is there. And uh, you know, if we're struggling, it's, it's, it's our doing. However, according to Hasidus, this is not true. Rather, it is God who purposely creates for us these challenging environments of exile, servitude, and difficulties with earning a living, a livelihood. The big question is why? Why would God, who is defined as God is good and he does good, why would God want for us to have these struggles and challenges? So much so that when a person once complained to the Rebbe that life is not easy, the Rebbe's response was, show me the contract that you have with God that your life will be easy. From this answer, I have always understood that unless one has a contract with God that their life is going to be easy, one should expect that their life is not going to be easy. Why? What is wrong with easy? This lecture is based primarily on a mimer, a mystical discourse that the Rebbe of Blessed Memory delivered on next Shabbos, not this Shabbos, but the next Shabbos in 1969, exploring the life of Jacob in his struggles with his twin brother, Esau, and how Jacob needs to prepare in peace offerings, prayer, and in war for when he is going to meet Esau. So the question, why the struggles? Let's go through some introductions. Introduction, this week's portion. Hasidim are studying in large measure the discourses that the Rebbe delivered in the year 5730, 1969-70, because the alignment of the Jewish calendar of that year is aligned with the alignment of the Jewish calendar this year. What does that mean? That means that the Torah portion, the day of the week, and the day of the Jewish calendar month coincide with the same way it coincided in 5730, which was 1969 and 70. Now, this, this discourse in 1969, the Rebbe did not deliver a discourse on this Shabbat, but delivered two on the following week. One during the Shabbat day Fabrengen, and the other in a special Saturday night Fabrengen, unusual, in order, in honor of the holiday of the 19th of Kislev, the day of the liberation of the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi. Now, however, the three primary themes of this Mimer are extremely connected with and apropos for this week's Torah portion. One primary, for, for, we can talk about the three primary focuses. One primary focus is on the work that Jacob had to accomplish with Esau, which in the Chabad teachings is the exact same service as to which reason, the opening verse of our Torah portion, which is, and Jacob left Beersheba, Israel, and went to Haran. The second primary focus of this mimer is in defining the physical world as the embodiment of space, which is again a primary focus of Chabad's teachings on this week's Torah portion of Jacob's, and I quote to you the verse, and he arrived at the place and lodged there because the sun had set, 
and he took some of the stones of the place and placed them at his head and he lay down in that place. So the concept of place is huge in this week's Torah portion. And the third primary focus of the Mimer is the transformation of the physical space of our world into an abode for God, which is precisely what the verse in this week's Torah portion says that Jacob committed to do. And I quote to you that Jacob promised to God that this stone which I have placed as a monument shall be a house of God. Okay, so that's why even though this Torah for this discourse was actually focused on next week's Torah portion, it is very apropos and appropriate to talk about it this week in this week's Torah portion. The next introduction. In order to understand the life and struggles of Jacob, we are going to have to understand the process and purpose of creation. Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi, the Alter Rebbe, founder of Chabad, defines it in one simple sentence. And I quote, God created something from nothing and wants us to make nothing from something. End quote. And the Alter Rebbe explains this that this is all because of, as the sages teach us in a medrash called Tanchuma, and it says like this, I quote, The purpose for which the world was created is that the Holy One, blessed be He, desired to have an abode in the lower realms. Let us understand this. What exactly is that sentence of the Alter Rebbe? God may created something from nothing, and wants us to make nothing from something. So let's talk about the first half of that phrase. God created something from nothing. In this part of the phrase, we are calling ourselves and all of creation something, while we are calling that which we are created from, divinity, nothing. Now, being that all of creation is finite, and what we were created from is the infinite light of God, then it would be far more accurate to say that God created a nothing, us, out of a something, God's infinite light, rather than the reverse. For in the realm of true existence, it is that which is infinite, eternal, and with no beginning and end, which is a something, while that which is finite and mortal is a nothing, even while it temporarily does exist. Hence the question, why are we saying that God created a something out of a nothing, when in truth it seems to be that God created a proverbial nothing out of a true something? Now, one of the explanations to this is, that from our paradigm, the human, a something has properties of which the infinite light has none. Our paradigm of a something is that it has a beginning and an end, a definition, and has its space. The infinite light has none of these properties. Hence, we are calling creation a something and the infinite light a nothing in the sense that the infinite light defies anything we can label as a something. Okay, let's move on to the second half of the phrase. And wants us to make nothing from something. What does that mean? Now that we understand that the definition of something is in it having a separate identity from the nothing, divinity, from which it was created, and that this means that every something is opaque, egocentric, self-centered, evolving around its definition of I, we can understand that the purpose of creation is for us to work on humility, defying the self-centeredness, creating a transparency within ourselves to the infinite light of God by living in accordance with God's will and having our life, our possessions, and all that we do become an abode, the primary residence of God. Hence, we are defining this goal of our transformation 
as nothing in being completely transparent, humble, and subservient to God, seeing ourselves as a nothing other than a conduit to and a piece of God. Now it makes sense that God wants us to take this ego something that he made and turn it into the humble, transparent nothing. What is primary to understand with certainty is that the only way that anything can ever become an abode or part thereof for God is through humility. Nothing of our greatest self-refinement, talents, or spirituality can ever become an abode to God without it being absolutely humble, hence transparent to God. We now understand that God created us in the full-blown self-centeredness, arrogance, and narcissism of perceiving ourselves as a something, only in order that we then diligently search for God in our lives. And this is done by, by transforming our egocentric something into a nothing, humility. However, this leads us to a question. If God is looking for an abode of humility and transparency to God, to His light and His will, then the true abode in which such humility and transparency can truly fully exist is not our dark and coarse physical world and our dark and self-centered physical body and paradigm of reality, but rather in the spiritual realms of angels, faces, and emanations, so as the good old question rings, why us? In essence, King Solomon, in, in his Solomonic way, asked the very same question. In Kings, in the book of Kings 1, repeated in the book of Chronicles 2, King Solomon says, and I quote, Behold, the heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain you, capital Y, much less this temple that I have erected. And this comes after the introductory question of King Solomon in the verse, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? So after King David builds a physical holy temple for God, he's questioning how would God, who the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain, be contained in this physical house? The heavens refer to the world of divinity, called Atzilut, where the emanations reside. And the heaven of heavens refers to the worlds that are superior to the world of divinity. Thus, King Solomon is wondering, how can it be that the completely humble and transparent worlds of heaven and the heaven of heavens are not capable of containing God? And nonetheless, the physical holy temple, including the tabernacle built by Moses, does contain God? Becoming an abode for the full essence of God. Next introduction. And here the Rebbe negates an opinion, thus emphasizing the thoroughness of the holy temple being an actual abode for God. To understand this, we are going to first need to understand different dimensions of vessels to higher lights. So in Kabbalah, there's always the vessel and the light, kind of like the body and the soul. One form of vessel is called mukhshar, which literally means talented, conducive, apropos. There is the dimension in which the vessel does not become a vessel, in the sense that the light closes itself within the vessel, bound with the vessel and affecting a transformation within the vessel. Rather, this vessel is merely conducive to having the light flow through it. Okay, for example, the physicality of the ten fingers of our hands are no different than the ten toes of our foot, meaning that 
the physiology of the fingers of the hand are no more connected to one's intellectual property than the toes of the foot. Nevertheless, it is through the fingers of the hand that the intellect of the mind is transmitted, with the fingers being able to move in accordance of the mind, writing the letters, words, sentences, and paragraphs. The same applies to drawing, playing music, etc., through which the intellectual thought is transmitted. What is happening with the fingers transmitting intellect is not that the fingers are the organ, the limbs, that can house intellect, allowing for intellect to permeate and affect the fingers. No. Other than the fingers are but merely being a conducive limbs through which to transmit intellect. Now let's go to the second level of vessels. Clothing itself within. So not so, let's follow through with the metaphor, not so with the brain. The physiology of the mass of our brain is indeed a physical embodiment of our mind, the intellect. With the brain being an organ of nervous tissue, neurotransmitters, and synaptic connections, it is the very physical mass which clothes our faculty of intellect. The mind, when working intellect, creates a physiological change in the crevices, weight, synaptic connections, and homeostasis of the brain mass. These physiological changes remain after the act of intellectual thinking, in which the actual intellectual thinking creates a true physical transformation in the brain. Okay, so now we understand two types of vessels. One is just conducive to have flow through it. The other actually becomes the embodiment of, bonded with, affected by what's in it. So too it is when we speak of God dwelling in the holy temple. There is an opinion that the relationship of God with the, whole, with the physical holy temple in God's dwelling in the holy temple was only as that of the fingers of the hand in its relationship with the intellect that is being transmitted through it. So according to this opinion, God didn't really dwell becoming actually in the house of the physical, transforming the physical holy temple. And there is no clothing and bonding and transformation between the physical holy temple and God that dwells in it. Nor... They say the same thing is concerning the physical brain of the prophet with the prophecy that flows through it. Now, they're saying, this opinion is saying that the divinity of the prophecy flows through the brain of the prophet such as only as the intellect flows through the fingers, but not that it becomes one with the fingers or affects a permanent change and bonding in the fingers. Now, this the Rebbe negates in explaining that God dwelled in the holy temple as the mind dwells in the brain and as the soul dwells within the body, not just passing through. So too it is concerning the physical brain of the prophet and the divinity of the prophecy that he's experiencing. Now, the Rebbe brings the proof concerning the holy temple is from the very verse of King Solomon and clearly emphasizing that God's dwelling in the holy temple is not the way God flows through heaven and heavens of heavens, but rather in God's being completely situated in the physical holy temple. The proof concerning the prophet's brain is from a teaching of the great Kabbalist Rabbi Chaim Vital, the student of the great Ari, of Isaac Luria, he writes in his book, Sha'arei Kedusha, The Gateways of Holiness. The prophet, he, I'm quoting, the prophet through his creating unifications of the supernal ten emanations, there is drawn upon him a prophetic revelation which, the following words, a quote, engraves itself within his brain. Thus the Rebbe negates the original opinion and says, that the 
opinion that is accepted is that God didn't flow through the whole the holy temple but actually physically dwelled within the holy temple just as the prophecy did not flow through the prophet but also engraved itself and became part and parcel of the physical mass of the prophet's brain okay thus it is precisely that in this physical opaque world of arrogance and not in the spiritual realms of humility and transparency that contains God in becoming a literal dwelling place for God. Hence, King Solomon's question, how and why? And now let us begin the lecture. So there are going to be four mystical topics which we are going to explore in this lecture before we wrap it up with a practical modern day issue. And let what are the four topics, the four concepts? One, the definition of space. Two, redefining the definition of space. Three, the why. And four, the how. And let the amazement of Hasidus begin. So, the definition of space. In Kabbalah and Hasidus, the finite is defined as time and space. Therefore, we had the question of how can the infinite light of God, which is eternal and omnipresent beyond the definitions of time and space, be contained in the physical holy temple, which is within the finite limitations of time and space. So let us explore what space means on a mystical level in the teachings of Kabbalah and Hasidus. There are two opinions in Kabbalah on what space is, which is based upon the two processes of the tzimtzum, the contraction upon the infinite light, allowing for a finite universe. So let's see what the two processes of the tzimtzum contraction is, and then we'll understand the two opinions of what space is. Number one, what is the first process of Tzimtzum? Upon the infinite light, the Tzimtzum created a reversal in its infinite shine, having the shine flow inward into the essence of the light, hence creating a place of void of the infinite shine surrounded by the great ring, that's what it's called, the Eagle Hagodol, the great ring of the infinite light around this place of void. The second process of the Tzimtzum is upon the finite shine. The Tzimtzum created a decreasing ray of light getting weaker and weaker as it descends into the place of void, allowing it to become the life force of a finite universe. Okay, now let's talk about the two opinions of space in accordance with these two processes of the symptom. The two opinions upon space, therefore, are one, space is defined by its boundaries and not by what is within the boundaries. Hence, the definition of space is the great ring of the infinite light, which serves as the boundary surrounding and defining the place of void. One opinion. The second opinion, space is defined by the place of the space itself, which is the finite shine within the place of void. Okay, the two opinions. Is it the infinite light forming a ring around the place of void, or is it the finite light within the place of void? That is the Kabbalistic, mystical, spiritual two opinions upon what space is. On the verse in Exodus, when God tells Moses after Moses asks God to see God's face, God said, behold, there is a place with me. Now, our sages in the Medrash on this verse teaches, and I quote, my place is subordinate to me, and I am not subordinate to my place. What does this mean? Well, for starters, being that the primary opinion of space is the second one, is that it is the finite linear light which permeates the place of void itself, hence 
this teaching of my place is subordinate to me is to teach us that even the finite light of the place of void is absolutely subordinate to God. And now let us, understand, let us understand what it means that my place, which is the finite linear light, is subordinate to me. Let's go on to the next topic, redefining the definition of space. Being that the entire purpose of the symptom contraction was to remove the absolute transparency to God and instead create a space which is finite, hence opaque, hence separated from divinity in its paradigm, hence has an ego, hence is self-centered, hence is defiant, and hence is not a vessel for the infinite light of God, thus we now understand the novelty of God's statement that in truth you should know even this opaque space of defiance is ultimately subordinate to me. Now, this begins on the spiritual level of space within the finite light itself. And what is that? The spiritual dimension of space within the finite light is the six directions which refers to the six male predatory emotion emanations, which defines the east, west, up, down, north, and south on a spiritual level. So we have the emotion of love, the emotion of fear, the emotion of compassion, the emotion of victory, the emotion of splendor, the emotion of commitment. These are the four directions which define space in the spiritual world of unity and divinity. And in this spiritual dimension of space, in which each dimension has its own finite definition, description, and properties, and nevertheless, the verse states in Chronicles, Yours, O Lord, are the greatness and the might, and it goes on to list all the six emotions. And yours, meaning that they are each subordinate to you, God. So even though each emotion has its own definition, properties, and paradigm of reality, but ultimately they are all subordinate to God. Now, these six dimensions, directions, emotions, are the spiritual life force of the physical universe. How so? As the Zohar teaches us on the verse, for six days God made the heaven and the earth. Now, the verse does not say for in six days, meaning in six days, God made heaven and earth. Rather, it says six days God made heaven and earth. So the Zohar explains that this is teaching us that God created the world through and from the six days themselves. Now, the Zohar says that these six days refer to the six supernal days, which are the six direction male emotion emanations. Okay? So, spiritual space is the life force through which and with which God created physical space. Thus, the teaching of my place is subordinate to me, is speaking of both the spiritual and the physical dimension of finite space, okay? Physically, let's now get real. Physically, we see this in the holy temple. Now, in order to understand this, what does it mean that finite space is subordinate to God, which transcends space? Let us enter into the dimensions of the holy of holies and of the holy ark that lay within. Okay, so I'm going to show you two pictures. I hope you can clearly see them. I think you can. Okay, so these two pictures, you have the outer box, which is the square, which is the Holy of Holies, which was the western room of the Holy Temple. Now, that room was 10 amot by 10 amot, roughly 15 feet by 15 feet. Now, within that room was the Holy Ark, the Holy Ark has the measurements of two and a half amot by one and a half amot. Now, 
if we are to place that in the center of the room, and then we are to measure from the outer wall of the holy ark to the wall, what you should have is, being that it's two and a half wide, therefore remaining on each side of the room should only be 10 minus two and a half equals seven and a half equals three and three quarters. Now, on the, the width of the, the other dimension of the holy ark is one and a half. Take one and a half away from 10, you are left with eight and a half. Thus, each side from the holy ark to the wall should be four and a quarter. Mm, eight and a half, yeah. Now, what you actually happened, if you look at the second square, you will see that miraculously enough that even when you measured the room from wall to wall, it was only 10 by 10. Nevertheless, miraculously enough, when you measured from the outside of the ark to its wall, you will find that there is five in each direction which means that if you would add up five plus two and a half plus five, it should be 12 and a half, but it wasn't, it was 10. If you added five plus one and a half plus five, it should be 11 and a half, but it wasn't, it was 10. What is going on with this miracle? Thus our sages explain to us, and I quote to you from the Talmud in Yuma. Rabbi Levi says, this matter is a tradition we received from our ancestors. The place of the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy Ark that held the tablets, is not in the measurement, which means it did not take up space included in the measurement of the Holy of Holies. What does this mean? On a Kabbalistic level, the Talmud is telling us that the Holy Ark and the Holy of Holies, even though they had a specific dimension of space, finite space, Nevertheless, they were in a dimension of beyond space and hence took up no space. Thus, we see that the physical defined finite space of the physical holy temple housed that which is beyond space. Thus, we understand what the teaching is, my space Space is, is subordinate to me. That even finite space is subordinate in the sense of complete self-nullification to be able to contain the beyond space of God. Okay, so let us go further. This is what it means that the physical world of finite space becomes for God beyond space with, right, God is beyond space, and abode in the lower realms. And since we explained earlier that the only way to become an abode to God is through humility, thus we now understand that the process of making the egocentric defiant realm of finite space an abode to God, we need to smash the defiant limitations of space that it be transparent, and that it be a receptive vessel to beyond space. Now we're going to explain what that means. And now the question becomes, how do we do this? Okay, before, let's go on to the next topic. Before the next concept in, in the Kabbalah, before we discuss the how, let us discuss the why. And to be more precise, the question is why the physical realm limited in its egocentric opaqueness, rather than the spiritual realms, which have it within their genetics to be humble and transparent to God. Why? Why the physical rather than the spiritual, if within the spiritual there already is the total humility, self-nullification, and transparency to God? To this, there are three reasons. Number one, there is a metaphor used in the teachings of the king finding pleasure in a speaking parrot. Now, far more than he has pleasure in his conversations with his brilliant ministers. 
Now, I, I need to just clarify, you know, so many movies and so many novels and so much of history had royalty, the king or the queen in certain situations, be foolish and, and nothing brighter than anyone else. And therefore, what are you asking a question why the king was enjoying the talking parrot? So let me note, very important, that in Torah teachings, what is the definition of a king according to the Torah? So in Samuel's, Samuel's 1, chapter 9, verse 2, the verse gives a description of King Saul, the first king of the Jews. Now, what does it say there? From his shoulders and upwards, he was taller than any of the people. Now, what does this mean? The Torah is not, definitely according to Kabbalah, is not just giving us a physical description of, Samuel, of King Saul's body. But rather, in Hasidus, what does this mean? Shoulders means the intellectual emotions. Now, what we're saying here is that the intellectual emotions of the king are above and beyond even the pure intellect of everyone else. Hence, it says that from the shoulder, intellectual emotions, the head is the intellect and the shoulders represent intellectual emotions, making its way down to the emotional emotions of the heart. Now, what he's saying here is that King Saul, the king, from his shoulders and up, was taller, superior than everyone else's head, meaning their intellect. So the king's intelligence and his paradigm are infinitely qualitatively superior. Hence, why would the king find pleasure in the talking of a parrot? The answer given in the teachings is because pleasure comes specifically from novelty. That which is normal, logical, and expected does not arouse true pleasure. While that which is an unexpected novelty brings great pleasure. Okay? That's the metaphor. Now let's go back to our conversation. Hence, it is precisely that because it is the genetics of the spiritual realms to be humble and transparent to God, so it's expected, it's normal, it's logical, that it does not draw forth the supernal crown of pleasure from God. And precisely because it is within the DNA of the physical realm and physical human being to be egocentrically opaque and self-centered, that our being humble and transparent to God draws forth the deepest pleasure from God. It's all about the novelty of what, what we are doing, we the arrogant, are doing for God. Becoming humble, obedient, and transparent to God, to God's light, and to God's will. The second reason why specifically God wants the physical and not the spiritual to be his primary residence. The true definition of humility and self-nullification is not when the humbled understands why he needs to be humbled before God. An example, when a smart person is humbled before a genius, it is because a smart man understands and appreciates the superiority of the genius to his own intellect. Hence, his humility to the genius is built upon his own understanding and thus is in the purity of absolute self-nullification. Now, not so with the simpleton who understands nothing of the superiority of the genius other than witnessing everyone else deferring to the genius with reverence, which is the sole reason that he too becomes humbled. He understands nothing, he appreciates nothing, he connects with nothing of the genius, and yet he forces himself to be humble because he sees everyone else who does understand being humble. Now, so too when seeing all the great ministers bowing to the king, he too bows to the king. Not because he understands a reason to bow, 
but because he forces himself to be humble and to bow. And that is the truest sense of self-nullification. Okay? And so it is with God. That only because the human sees that, and I quote you the verse from Nehemia, and the heavenly hosts bow down before you, meaning that even while the orbits go from west to east, nevertheless, within the orbit, the sun and the moon is pulling from east to west because the Zohar tells us that God's presence reigns and rests in the west. Thus, we see it bowing, therefore, with no understanding or appreciation as to why, the human forces himself to bow and to be humbled before God. This bowing, this humility, which he doesn't understand why, but he forces himself to be humble and obedient to God, this is true, true quality of self-nullification. Hence, let's go back to our conversation. Precisely because of the grasp of the greatness of God that the spiritual realms have, therefore their humility and transparency to God is not pure self-negation. While precisely because of our lack of understanding to, of, and transparency to God, and no appreciation of God's greatness, and nevertheless we force ourselves to be humble to God, this is the truest and purest quality of self-negation. A third reason why God wants the physical and not the spiritual to be his primary abode. And lastly, a fundamental difference between all of the spiritual realms and the, from the highest to the lowest levels and of the physical realm is that spirituality comes from the infinite light of God. However, Regardless of all the infinite amount of contractions and concealments upon the infinite light, spirituality, there can never come from spirituality a physical being. The physical can only come from that which is no more spiritual than physical and to which both the spiritual and the physical are equally naught. So the spirituality of the infinite light cannot produce physical. The physical has to come from somewhere that the spiritual and the physical are both equal and they're both equally not. And therefore, what this teaches us is that the physical realm and the physical beings all come only from the essence of God, God himself, and not from the infinite light of God. This is why, being that only God himself has no source, even the infinite light of God has a source, which is God himself. The only which has no source is God himself. And being that this is the source, this is the actual creation of the physical is from God himself. So being that God himself has no source, but is the source of everything, Therefore, it is only the human being that who can entertain the notion that all existence comes from itself with no source. There is no such thing as an atheist angel. There is such a thing as an atheist human being. Because the physical human being, this human being, the physical human being, has the DNA, so to speak, of God himself. And so it is by God that God has no source, but is the true existence of himself. Thus, physical human beings having that DNA can express it in a perverse way, believing as an atheist that the world exists from itself. The Big Bang and evolution, yada, yada. Hence, coming back to our conversation, because the physical alone comes from the essence of God, Therefore, the physical alone experiences a total self-nullification and total transparency into becoming its truest being of God himself, which is the physical becoming an abode to God himself. 
The spiritual realms are an abode to the infinite light of God, but the physical realm is an abode to God himself. Unlike all the spiritual realms and being which experiences self-nullification and transparency only to the infinite light of God, which is their source of being, and not to the essence of God himself. Hence, God chooses the physical to be his abode and not the spiritual. And now that we understand the why, we can proceed to the how. We explain that the primary manifestation of the physical world Becoming an abode for God was the tabernacle of Moses, which eventually morphed into the holy temple. So let us look into the primary service of the tabernacle and of the holy temple, which was to bring sacrifices. Now, to understand the service of bringing a sacrifice from an animal, we will have to look into Ezekiel's prophecy of the chariot, the throne of God. That is the first chapter in the book of Ezekiel. And I quote to you, And the face of a lion was on their right, the face of an ox to their left, and the face of an eagle. And it goes on to say, And above the expanse that was over their heads, like the appearance of a sapphire stone, was the likeness of a throne. And on the likeness of the throne, was a likeness like the appearance of a man upon it above. Now, let's understand what these verses are telling us. So we're going to give the mystical insight. What these verses are telling us is that it is the animal kingdom which lifts up the throne upon which there was a likeness like the appearance of a man. Now, Kabbalah and Hasidus explain the food chain be based upon these verses as well. In the world of holiness, the higher does not nourish, eat, off of the lower. Rather, it is from the residue of the energy of the higher that the lower receives its nourishment. Hence, why do humans eat animals? The answer is that in their source, the animal comes from a higher source than the human does. Now, in the footnote, which I'm not going to get into here, as always, I will post the notes and you can print it. You can read every word that I'm saying. You will have a footnote explaining beautifully why the source of the animal is higher than the source of the soul of man. Now, this is the secret of the food for the likeness, like the appearance of a man, being the sacrifice of the angel, which reaches up to and even lifts up the throne of the, a likeness like the appearance of a man. And the process is done by first having the human being doing teshuvah, return, repentance, humbling his own inner animal, which led him to sin. After which the animal sacrifice, after it's ritually slaughtered, and kosher is elevated upon the altar to be consumed by the fire of God. Now, which is all about the passion of our animal within being refined, cleansed, and transformed into a passionate, fiery love for God. And then, in return, this process draws down the infinite one and the essence of God God himself into this house, the physical holy temple. So we understand that it is precisely through the process of a sacrifice, a physical sacrifice of an animal, which is all a metaphor for the novelty of the human being, sacrificing the egocentric, rebellious side of his own inner animal, to be transformed into a passionate, fiery love of God, that is what redefines space, allowing for the beyond space, the essence of God, to rest within the finite physical space of the physical holy temple. And so too it is with us. Now, today that we do not have the holy temple in Jerusalem, 
so it is our synagogues, which is the holy temple, with our prayers serving as our sacrifices of the self-centered arrogance of our inner animal through a concentrating and meditation on the greatness of God, on the lowliness of the physical human being and his drives, and upon the relationship we have with God himself. Hence, through having a meditative prayer, a concentrative prayer, we fan a passionate, fiery love and awe for God, which can be true only after the self-negation of the rebellious animal within us. And that is a novelty. That is the talking bird. That is the arrogant human being, being humble and obedient. That is the novelty which draws down the supernal crown, the pleasure of God, God himself, into this physical world. Let us get more detailed about the service of the talking parrot in which we bring about the novelty of having our arrogant animal, inner animal become humble, self-nullified, and transformed through the service of bringing our animal sacrifice, which today is done through our prayers. When bringing a communal sacrifice on behalf of the Jewish people, there were three elements involved. As our, our sages teach us in the Talmud, tract in Megillah, number one, there were the Kohanim, the priests at their service. Number two, the Levites on the platform. And number three, the Israelites at their watches. Okay? So the Kohen is the one that actually stood by the altar bringing the sacrifice. There was a platform upon which the Levites would stand and play their instruments and sing during the sacrifices. And then there were the Israelites that would go ahead and have the, what he calls, watches. Okay? Now, just that you know, what does it mean, the watches? Because every sacrifice has to have its owner there, so the communal sacrifices would have to have the whole Jewish nation there. So what was decreed was that there were 24 different watches, different groups of chosen individual Israelites that represented the entire Jewish nation. So now let's look at what these three parts of the sacrifice service represents to us in our life. So first let's talk about it on the level of the Holy Temple. The Kornim at their service. The Kornim are called in the Talmud in Yuma. These priests who sacrifice the offerings are the agents of the merciful one. Meaning that the secret of the sacrifices is that it begins with the elevation of the animal from below to above, right? From the physical realm to the spiritual realm. Therefore, in order to do that, the service must first be prefaced by a drawing down of spiritual empowerment from above to below. This is what the Cohen's part of the service is on a mystical level. It's drawing down an empowerment from above to below, the Kohen is the emissary, the agent of the merciful one, meaning he draws down a, an energy, an empowerment to be able to then do the sacrifice of elevation. Part two, the Levites on their platform. The service of the Levites were to elevate from below to above, the physicality into the spirituality. That's their part. Now, the Zohar states in volume 3 that the job of the Levite is, and I quote, to raise up his voice and to sing. This is the process of the sacrifice service in elevating the physical animal up to the spiritual heights of its source. Number three, the Israelites at their watches. This is the service of drawing down the essence which is reached by the elevation of the sacrifice into the physical world. So once there's part two, which is the sacrifice reaching up into the even higher spiritual sources, and then once that happens, stage three brings down that highest level of spirituality and even beyond into the secret of God himself into the physical world. Thus, Therefore, our sages teach, and I quote to you a teaching of the Talmud, tractate Tanit, Rabbi Yaakov Bar Acha said that Rabbi Asi said 
were it not for the non-priestly Israelite watches, these groups, heaven and earth would not continue to exist. As it is stated in Genesis, and he said, referring to Abraham, Lord God, by what shall I know that I shall inherit it? And I bring again down in a footnote, read the notes. There's a footnote here which explains what the Talmud is talking about, how Abraham wanted to know what was the promise that we will truly inherit the physical world. So therefore, by the sages talking of the Israelite watches, that tells us that the job of the Israel watches is the eternal transformation of the actual physical world into a on a boat to God. The meaning that is precisely the, this meaning that precisely this stage of that process, the drawing down of the essence of God himself into the physical world, which transforms the physical world into the abode of God himself. Now, concerning our present service of prayer, who is the Kohen, Levi, and Israelite? So these three parts of service are, number one, giving charity before prayer which draws down the spiritual energy we need to have a successful elevation through our prayer. Number two, work a concentrative and meditative prayer, which is the elevation of the physical inner animal to the height of the infinite one. And number three, study some Torah after the prayer, which draws down the infinite one into the physical world. Now let's go back to Jacob. And so it was with Jacob in next week's Torah portion. In preparing to elevate, transform, and draw into Esau to become an abode for God himself, that he prepared with one, sending gifts. That was drawing upon Esau the energy to elevate himself. Number two, prayer, in which Jacob was processing the elevation of Esau. And number three, the dividing of his camps, which is the Torah study, to draw down the infinite one into the physical Esau. And so likewise, it is with the teaching of our sages upon the verse in Psalms, he redeemed my soul with peace from the battle that came upon me because of the many people who were with me. Simply speaking, King David is talking to God how he was saved and redeemed from the war of Avshalom. However, in the Talmud, it talks about a deeper meaning in which this verse is God speaking to each and every one of us. And what does God say? I quote to you from the Talmud, okay? Oof, I'm sorry, just one second here. Okay, and the Talmud says, the Holy One, blessed be He, says, Anyone who engages in Torah, step number three, and in acts of kindness, step number one, and prays with the congregation, step number two, I ascribe to him as if he redeemed me and my children from among the nations of the world. And what this means on a deeper level is that we transform the opaque darkness imprisonment of this physical world to become an abode for the essence of God. In closing, and again, all the footnotes I'm not going to go over, but it gives a fuller explanation. Please print up the notes as I post the link and you can read them. In closing, a laborious challenge of love. In closing, we can now understand the necessity of struggle in life. For we now understand that the purpose of life is to create a pleasure for God and hence creating an abode for God, specifically through the novelty of that which is not natural to accomplish. This means that we are to overcome our genetics, our DNA of ego, self-centeredness, and rebellion tendencies to become humble, self-nullified, transparent, and obedient to the presence and will of God. Thus, the struggles, the difficulties of struggles that we experience in life are the disintegration of our narcissistic ego and self-centeredness. Therefore, 
what we now know is that within us lay the DNA, so to speak, of God himself. And not only of his infinite light, for only God can create the physical. And simultaneously, within this DNA lay the genetics of the arrogance, I have no source and am incumbent to no one and to nothing which displays itself as absolute ego, opaqueness, and coarseness within our physical, opaque paradigm. Now, and when we are willing to struggle in the disintegration, in disintegrating the ego within us, we bring forth the true God himself that is within us, then we are fulfilling our purpose and becoming our truest self. Thank you.